0: My name is Shani Jamila, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Lineage. This show is actually part of my practice as a conceptual artist. My work, which is made in response to centuries of family records meticulously researched by my genealogist grandmother, explores ancestry, identity formation, and the idea of home. On Lineage, I host intimate, in-depth conversations with fellow socially engaged Black artists about these same themes. Today, I'm pleased to welcome you back to part two of my interview with musicians Jason Moran and Alicia Hall Moran. Jazz pianist, composer, and artist Jason Moran was named a MacArthur Fellow in 2010, and he's the artistic director for jazz at the Kennedy Center. Alicia Hall Moran, mezzo-soprano, is a multidimensional artist who's recorded two albums, Heavy Blue and Here Today, along with live touring performances like Breaking Ice and Black Wall Street. Jason and Alicia's long-standing collaborative practice is groundbreaking. They've curated large-scale performances for the Whitney Biennial, the Venice Biennial, and most recently, they created Two Wings for Carnegie Hall. Jason and Alicia joined me for this interview from their home studio in Harlem. Let's listen in. You all met at Manhattan School of Music, right? Mm
1: Mm-hmm.
0: As... Teenagers or early twenties? Where
2: were you? She was a young teen I and 20. I was a grown woman. She
1: was well, t- <laughs> maybe you were maybe I was I 21. was twenty one. No, I was twenty one. Yeah, I was twenty and she was twenty one. She's a year and a half older. A
2: very 20. mature, twenty one.
1: But it already graduated from Barnard, so I seemed very uh, junior to her.
2: You were a junior, you were a junior in college, and I was <laughs> literally coming right, in. That's true. You were a junior.
1: <laughs> okay, okay. Right, oh,
2: yeah. cuckoo. That's cool. Cuckoo. <laughs> uh, and I needed that. That's a good match for women to men. Barnard woman. Yes. Yeah, get two years <laughs> up on that person. Otherwise.
1: Um, um, yeah, we met in the school. And
2: we were friends.
1: We were friends first. And there was a reckoning at a party Alicia had oh, on Rick. Halloween where she said, Now, if you come to this party, that means you're broken up with your girlfriend. Christmas
2: party. Not it Halloween. It wasn't? Oh, a too soon. Oh, Christmas. Okay.
1: I thought it was, no, yeah, it was you're Christmas right, right. Halloween was a date, um, Christmas party. So if you show up, that means, you know, that means you're here. But if you don't show up, you know, then we just be friends. And I was like, mm. <laughs> Anyway.
0: You better set some terms. but you showed up, huh?
1: Yes, I did show up. I had to make it happen. <laughs> um. <laughs> Good, too. Anyway, yeah, that's how we, we met at, at Manhattan School of Music. I mean, there's a lot of layers in the setup of that. Both of our families did not see the arts as something that their children should not pursue as an art, as a, as a, as a life uh, choice. And
2: class-wise, it was esteemed and looked up to. To, to if you could achieve that, that would be great
1: mm-hmm. in the family
2: lineage. So when I, we hear stories of the opposite that's always like a very different kind of viewpoint that we in no way grew up around. I mean, doing a career in finance, would my dad have loved to go to Manhattan School of Music and be a saxophone major? I've never asked him. That's a good question. Probably, but it's like, who paid for that? My father paid for that. My mother paid for me to have that education. Mm -hmm. With cost money. So, So I can help all I want to. It costs so much money, you can't help yourself. That's a loan, or your family puts you through that experience. That's it. Those are your options.
1: And also, for both of uh, the families, it was also like, well, we're going to try to help you get there, but we don't even know what that's going to look like for you. You know? So, mm-hmm. it. you know, Alicia does have professional musicians on her deep into her uh Hall well,
2: Johnson, Johnson descendant yeah but other than that no Al Hibbler okay also. Jason has this thing about <laughs> Al Hibbler I am related to him by blood
1: but yeah and look if I had an Al Hibbler <laughs> in my family I'd be saying it I'm just saying though
2: right but for whatever reasons which should be you know which I don't bring up because that's my family way that no one other than that one aunt even talks about that or brings that up now why is that I don't know. Hmm. But we're at peace about the Great Migration. Why did one person leave the town in Alabama and the rest of the family stayed? Why yeah. did they leave at night? Why does nobody know which train they got on? Hmm. Why were no letters written home? Um, Plenty of reasons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have a deep respect for people's, I guess like people's, people's unsaid pathway of how they get to where they get to. There is, a, and we, I had one aunt and she would talk about him and she had stars like in her
1: eyes. She loved Ellington. She, so Al Hibbler was singing with Duke Ellington's band yes. and he premieres mm-hmm. kind of big famous songs Huge. in, you know, one song, which we always have played together is called, I like the sunrise that she's, that he sang with Duke Ellington at Carnegie Hall. Um, so there's, and he's blind too, you know, so he, he's. He marks just a different presence on the stage um, for for the voice. Um, deep, deep voice that he has, too. Well, the,
2: that kind of baritone singing also had been the sound of America. Mm-hmm. So that changed. Mm-hmm. And then you get falsetto, and then you get other styles of music. But that kind of leading baritone, that, that Paul Robeson, mm-hmm. fah, that Nat King Cole, mm-hmm. you know, into Smokey Robinson. And then it kind of never goes back in a certain kind of a way. Uh, which is one reason why I really love opera. <laughs> because as soon as you open the door at opera, baritones fall out. It's like everything is a big voice, you know? And then tenors are the ones like really, you know, on that edge, like fighting and singing the most difficult music ever. But I, but I just have to say that. Because the, and part of what, when J- Jason and I make projects, it's a lot of that me interrupting that kind of flow. So he'll bring everybody on the like, PBS storybook hour of the music. And then I start, I just go pop, pop, flip it, rotate it, ego out, this thing in. Also, it's like, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna get farther that way but the thing is you may not want to end up where you end up when you go there mm-hmm. so once you go there you can't really control where you end up um, but i'm more comfortable with that
0: let me jump in and take us back a little bit i want to paint the picture of the children you were before you came together um, at that party at that reckoning <laughs> <laughs> you know, some years ago. So Jason, let me start with you. You, tell me about your first memories, your childhood in in Texas. What do you remember?
1: Um, That's hard. I grew up in the neighborhood my mother's family grew up in. So all the aunts and my mother had four sisters uh, and one uh, brother, but all the aunts lived basically in the same neighborhood. My grandmother still lived in the same neighborhood too all the same zip code, so, you know, it was kind of, it was a cocoon of family, Uh, and that's the way Houston felt. And so you were always kind of around Cousins weekly, Um, my mother talking to her mother daily. Um, So that's like a sound I hear. I mean, there's also the sound of of what the, what the the neighborhood sounded like, whether it was pine needles that you had to rake up, cicadas, uh, locusts, um, um, gunshots, you know, uh, early hip-hop, you know, um, uh-huh. and I think there was also something being born, because hip-hop is being born, well, it's been, it had been born long before, but it was finally also starting to have its first roots, kind of like growing in Houston. So uh, the ghetto boys being from Fifth Ward, Houston, which is not far from Third Ward where I was living, Fifth Ward kind of made it a pride element that we had for a sound coming from that was also going out. And that part was like, you know, and a lot of musicians came to visit Houston. My parents always took us to see Andre Watts, this African-American classical pianist, Went Marsalis, you know, I mean, countless concerts, countless dance, uh, performances, uh, countless exhibitions, and also my parents had a home that wanted to mimic a museum. Mm.
0: So
1: the, the they collected artists in the neighborhood, they collected, you know, they sent works out on loan to exhibitions, you know. So there was a feeling that all this could happen in your neighborhood. You didn't have to move neighborhoods to do any of this, and that there was a pride and specifically a black and black family pride that once I left Houston at 18 to move to New York, I knew that that would have to be central to how I would want to function for anything to really feel right. Um, and so that, you know, that's what it felt like growing up for me in, in Houston.
0: As I was prepping for the show last night, I went back and watched um, a lecture you gave at The Whitney a couple years ago um and one of the images that came up was that John Biggers shotgun piece that you used to play under and 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 seeing it really made me like I could in my mind there was this image of like this beautiful piece and then you as a child just sitting at the piano am I picturing it correctly what did that what did that look like what did that feel like you were six when you started playing right
1: Yes. And, and I hated playing. So I got to say that all that <laughs> like piano is not fun when you're learning it because it, it makes the, it challenges the brain every time. And the ear lets you know when you fucking up mm-hmm. and, um, the hand might not, you know, so by the time I'm 13 or 14, and I find the love of music that also find also my parents really talking about their love of art. So, practicing and seeing the patterns that Biggers creates, um, practicing and seeing the women he puts on the canvas, how they hold, what they guard, what they protect. They're standing in front of their shotgun houses, which are also very much part of the landscape of Third Ward, or Fifth Ward, all these neighborhoods down South. So there was something regal that he's making these spaces that are so humble. Um, and as a kid, it's, it's also like, that's how good you need to be. You know, but it's the visual version, right? I'm listening to McCoy Tyner, but the visual version is like, this is a, this is something. And then my parents, I never met John Biggers. My dad would say, oh, you know, I should take you over to see John, you know? And I remember thinking that that was going to happen. And I never pushed on it to happen, um, unfortunately, before he passed. But, but those works are very much a part of my family's life, you know? Like uh, And it's
2: also my parents also, same thing, like running art shows out of their house, out of their first apartment. Artists, you know, who has the biggest walls? That's the wall you tap onto. And some of the early gallerists in New York um, being among their friends, like those kinds of, that. Early, they lived in Manhattan, by the way, in New York City. Mm-hmm. So that gallery, you know, I think of who my godmothers are. This is like a Peg Alston. It's like feels to me, like now we have to ask her: does she co-sign? But I'm pretty <laughs> sure. <laughs> She's My godmommy yeah, to me, she... like, these kind of the were, Kinshasha, Kinshasha like these kind of women who were Sasha, and Sasha Holman Conwell, like these kind of women were world in the '70s, in the '80s. They're making into the '90s. They're making this soil that we live on now, mm-hmm. right? And then. I remember like and then when they moved to the suburbs, that same house where my kids run around, then the coalition of 100 black women used to have um, uh, this art show. And my mom was like, because my mom was like, I'm bringing my little city thing I like. That made me feel like in the world, right? She mm-hmm. brought that where she went and then they started doing that. And so you had this kind of remake of what I think of like the Ebony Fashion Fair <laughs> around the country coming out of these working women and um housekeeping women like bringing fashion around the country to us then my mother is part of this group with my father br- making also just like jason's family making world-class noise around our art and our artists and so then when i when we went to nigeria and my, my mom was like, we're gonna check out this artist for our art show. Like they even the family vacations are becoming about checking out this artist or somebody there's a taxi pull up in the suburbs on the driveway and a taxi rolls up and you don't know who it is. That's like <gasps> Calvary. you don't know whats what that is. Who's in our house? And it was this, uh Haitian artist with a bunch of paintings in the back. He's like, I came with my paintings, like for the to our house. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Like things growing up like that. And that's that big picture in my parents' mm-hmm. um, kitchen. So it's kind of like hearing Jason talk about this, I think, yeah, that's very interesting. The city of Houston, which also then can produce a like Beyonce and like a black mayor and things like this. <laughs> like, and, and make. Ho- <laughs> yeah. And host the Super Bowl and stuff like that. Okay. So that's Houston. And then here's his family in Houston. Like, Right. And then when he marries me, that kind of energy was coming out of my house. Mm. But like none of my family live in Connecticut except my parents. Or none of my family lived in Manhattan with me and my sister, except my parents. So those artist people became my family. Like my sister, her middle name is Elaine, after the playwright, Elaine Jackson, who was my mother's very good friend growing up. All these people, wrote, Shirley Verrett, the great opera singer, that's my mom's park date, because Shirley Verrett has a daughter who is my age, and Riverside Park, so we're playing together. Then, so it causes me to have a real understanding of maybe why Jason thought I could be okay in his very family structured life, because, it's all the same energy. But mine is very much about like, it just takes one. And and then you find another one, right? And then you find another one, like Shani, to me, you are a one, right? We're not coming from two clans who hung out together. I don't know you from anything or anybody else except through yourself and that's our relationship. There's nobody watching our relationship but us. And I think I have a million of those that make me feel like I am in a community. And then as we're growing older, we find out that we are, but you don't always, you don't always know what that means. So I think going back to what you said about COVID in the beginning, it was also a time, not in a negative way for me, a positive way to find out who your community is. Because you don't really know until the barn is on fire who can even smell your smoke. It doesn't mean they don't like you. It just means they're not in the way of your, they're not downwind of your stuff. But like mm-hmm. who, who really came through for me, like deep in my soul, the mothers in my son's dance class. Like, I want to cry these are not people I was looking for, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: but these are the people who were there when the thing happened that could have took me down and the way they showed up for me, very moving, right? Mm -hmm. And this doesn't in the end ever have a label walking on it called, I'll be here for you. You just don't know your enemies, can be here for you. Because one, they study you, and two, they know who else is sniffing around. But let somebody come for you though. Let somebody come for you and that wolf smells it, you'll be shocked who comes for you to save you. I'm always surprised. I'm always surprised in the best way. So I think like it was just a time for teeth all around. And I had some really moving, uh, experiences during this time. And I, and to, if I have to be shut in the house with Jason, I think that him hearing how I see things as a unit, unit oriented, like, no, we can do it all. We just mean the boys and you, we can make this, we call our parents on the phone. We, do, we can do, we shot, we can create a world from in here, like a mission control. We can do this, but you know, who sent us food in the mail? His aunt sent us ribs in the mail with a coleslaw
0: mix. I mean- Wait a minute now. You know, Cause I, I remember Jason and, and We Hold These Truths, you talked about that brisket in your family that was so <laughs> famous that your granny made. And
2: now yeah. now I find out it's coming through USPS. I mean, what's, what's really good? Yeah. What yeah. more do people- <laughs> And then also I got a teaching yeah. job, which was on its way before COVID. And then COVID happened, and it just it got fast tracked, so or whatever happened.
1: Yeah, there's a real need to, and, and
2: that saved me as well.
1: Yeah, the students see, to 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 be with students, that future part. You know, we looking at the centennial of the Harlem Renaissance. That's also post the Spanish flu. So yeah, there's a lot that's hemmed up. You know, there's a lot being broken, promises being broken. Um, and then there's something that about kind of renewal that happens in the arts. So how do you prepare those students who are now at the same age that we were when we met each other? How do you give them something of like, you know, we need you to step up and I don't need you to come out here stupid. I need you to come out here with some skill, some worth of yourself. That's enough to share and be proud of. And, be, and the ability to make something new that challenges mm-hmm. everything we've said. Mm-hmm. So, you know, prepping new new bodies uh, to, to come out because they have to be strong to weather through kind of the past two years and what will be difficult probably for the next couple of years. But they their ability to lean forward into it, it has been, like, mm. <laughs> 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 it has been important for us to be as, uh, as educators, because that, Yeah, the students also really helped week to week too. Talking to them,
2: he's a good teacher. We would listen. You don't try to listen, but you just get getting knowledge. Just hitting you in the face. Walk to the kitchen. Knowledge, knowledge. He's (laughs) playing, doing demonstrations, and uh, that's such a lame word. He'll play in the lessons sometimes, or investigate something. And it became like a whole music education for the kids. And I don't know. No, I I do know. No COVID. You wouldn't, uh, who knew what their parents did growing up unless they did something specific? Such a good point. Absolutely. Yeah. I do this.
1: I'm in the the, the hair salon. So you got to sit here and watch me do heads all day. Like
2: (laughs) actual how, oh, I teach English. Okay. It's highly accepted that people think they know what happens in an English class, but we know anything can happen in an English class. So if you don't know how your mama teaches English, you don't really know what was going on
1: in there.
0: Both of you have talked about, you know, the impact that your your teachers have had on your own, like life and practice. Jason, you've talked about, um, Mr. Byer and Alicia, you know, even in your bio, you put Shirley Barrett, Adele Addison, Hilda Harris, David Jones, Warren Wilson. You list them by, you call their names, which is in in and of itself a practice and an honoring. So tell me, like, what have you learned about yourselves as teachers, particularly during this year when everything has been so um, extra, for lack of a better word?
1: I'd say one, I was a different kind of student. So I was looking for something uh very specific for my teachers and i think my students show up to m- my classes or lessons for very different reasons which i'm not aware of and so therefore what i've learned is that i have to be my own style of teacher mm. as much as i wanted to be the kind of teacher that jackie Bayard and andrew hill and newhall richard abrams were to me and they were very organized teachers <laughs> they really had like now we're going to do this this week and now we're going to do this next week and you need to show me this assignment you know I'm not that way um but I but that's what I that's how I've learned uh the student today is very different too um they're aware of different uh factors so also I think of my Uh, what I feel like I learned from them is to savor the information that I learned on the road by traveling the music around the world. Mm -hmm. That's what I felt like I also relied on my teachers for. And then I, but I'm in a different position than my teachers because I also give gigs to a lot of people. I work at places that promote students and invite them, you know, into other workshops and bring them onto stages. So I'm also working with them to say, you know, like, and also I can see a future for you doing a concert here. Um, yeah yeah and, and that has also felt like okay so then my add- on to that information that my teachers gave me is to then like give them give this the future student the platform too um,
2: like as a producer almost it's yeah. like producing the students almost
1: yeah and that, and that my teachers they weren't like that they, they had something else they want to give you the good idea but you got to make the rest of it know <laughs> 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 and, uh, and there's no promises about it either. And maybe that's kind of like blunt, bluntness of really what it is, especially for those generations who were closer to things, closer to jazz being a popular, popular music, you know, and being around when it was act, act, actually pop music. Yeah. Versus when it has fallen out of style and also when the politics of the country are changing and when there's not like massive funding and support of the music too. So it hadn't quite reached like, okay, it's gonna be in universities and be, you know, and all these jobs that white men are gonna take from black music. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot that happens in those 30, 20, 30 years between 1950 and 1980, which what Marsalis really kind of comes back in to say, ah, actually, no, that's the hours, you know? Um, and uh, so I, as a teacher, that also is part of what I, I have to do with the students in preparation for whatever future they, they might get to but I had to accept that I had to, I was my own style of teacher. And then as much as I wanted to, I couldn't be my teachers, just like I couldn't be them at the piano either.
0: Um, Let me just conclude by asking you all a question about um, cultural genealogies, because this idea of lineage um, on one hand is about like literal blood lineage and family, which is one of the reasons why I was so excited to talk to the two of you, because I feel like the way you approach your work is so rooted in that. Um, the family you're creating and the families that you come from, so um, thank you for spending so much time talking to me about that today. But then there's also this idea of cultural genealogies, you know, like the the artists and the ancestors whose, whose feet we walk inside of. Um, and as you all are interfacing with the students that you were talking about as you're raising your children, as you're building this future together. Um, thinking about what kind of artistic trajectory you're you're walking and who who laid that path. So I wonder, I mean, when I look at you two, from a culpable sp- perspective, you're like, I think of you as like our, our Ozzy and our Ruby.
1: That's who I compare us to, you know? Yeah. Though, yeah, I do. I don't know if I talked to you about it, but Ozzy and Ruby, because they, they represented for their craft set. And they didn't limit it just to the people on the stage, too. They represented for... For the peoples around it, and and then they and then they exhibited in a way that every generation could trust. You know, like people still wanted to be at their feet. You know, uh, as they aged. You know, it's like there are very few examples of it too that you see. You know, the other is they're not in they're not uh, performers, but I think of Charles and Ray Eames also as people who took care of homes for people, made something new out of the wood. They wanted to bend it so that you could sit your body down into it, right? Like. I think I think of them too, um, but then also for us culturally, we think of the way, the ways. I think what I've grown out of is thinking that it was specifically a jazz tradition, and what Alicia's family has taught me is is also this relationship to the literary tradition, the relationship to the dance traditions, and then what my grandmother teaches me is the ways of the southern traditions, mm-hmm. and that those that and and it and I and though I am have started my life really in a kind of way really focusing on the men in my life it has been all of the women in the past 25 years that have changed all of being brought up by thinking about the men (laughs) in my life (laughs) to have like nah well let's not only focus on those men artists um and and that drastically change. A- Alicia's mother in particular, uh, Carol Hall, really changes a lot of it. Really as my mother dies too. And she represents as um, just someone extremely thoughtful and also gives you like, yeah, you're doing good. <laughs> but also has a very sharp knife to cut your editing up of your language that you're trying to write because she's an editor, um, and so for me that's the cultural genealogy because they, though they may not her parents, my parents might not ever ever consider themselves artists, they really really are, and they knew how to make some, and I'd say that our siblings also are you know artists in that way. They are very sensitive. Very culturally aware of how art works, you know, in a society. um, You know? -hmm.
2: Some you hold on to and some you let go. Yeah. That's important. Yeah. I love what you said.
1: Yeah. So, anyway, so that's, yeah.
0: One last, last question. Um, I'm thinking about where you all are recording this conversation from, which is your your home in Harlem that you've built, where you're raising two young black men, um, where you're creating a home for other artists from. And I, I I just want to talk to you about this idea of what what home means to you.
1: Yeah, a home a home has to have. Yeah. Well, there's emotional rooms, you know. Um, they they might not necessarily be physical, but you you have to feel enough safety mm-hmm. in the home to let those emotions out, um, and that takes a lot of awareness, and and for you to be able to read one another too. Like I was tell, talking to her about my mother, my my room when I grew up in Houston was on top of the kitchen, so every once in a while when my mother got fed up with us three boys and a and a husband who's also acting like a boy uh when when she would rant i just heard it you know and hey, and hey, hey, you coming up in this house all stinking up you know, hear slamming of the, all the things of the, and it will it would work up for like 7 minutes before then it was like get your ass down here you know <laughs> and that was like but it was like it was like a drum solo before the melody came back in, <laughs> and uh, that's a home, right? So, like she, you know, like that was a y'all need to get out the kitchen because this fire is about to boil. I mean, it's about to really flame for a second, and then it's gonna come down so that you can come back in here so I can eat you up. But <laughs> and that's for us. That for us, that's a home. That's the kind of home I grew up in, and I think during COVID we've we've learned kind of more about what our house is you know mm-hmm. and how it works and and
2: i i just when he says a safe space in your house i think what i learned from this conversation is that we because i did come here to learn like i don't know anything i came here it was like shani will tell us what we think <laughs> for we're thinking what do we think we thinking then shani showed me so i think it's that the house that we carry our house in us And then we also figure out how to process that house in you don't mean perfect you. It just means it's a potable, it's a digestible chunk that I can get through. It doesn't mean you like raw carrots. They make my third age. But I do know a carrot is good for most people. So I do serve them to my children. But me, I boil mine a lot. You know, but if I had to eat it raw, I could. It's a negotiation, not one time and then I'm done with it. Over and over and over. And where you don't want to do that work, that is the relationship to exit. That is the piece of music to put down. It's not, it's so perfect, I'm done with it. Or it's perfect, do it every single time. No, my, I said, Coach Warren Wilson, he would, he, ugh. He would set me up, like give me the hardest. Thing. He said, well, you just need to feel what the challenges are in the preparation of that piece. I was like, before I can do it well, that's embarrassing. But like I said, the teachers, the great teachers, they never tell you why. You just got to live the life. And now I know why. And also the empathy when somebody else is bringing a piece of virtuosity to your feet.
1: Mm, yeah.
2: I feel blessed. I feel blessed. Blessed that I know that blessed that I know I don't like the taste of those carrots, but just because you sell carrots don't mean I don't need you. <laughs> carrots are That's good mean. for you. You know what I mean? They are.
0: That is a note to end on. I really appreciate y'all. <laughs> carrots are good. I'm glad that my, my big experiment in New York brought me to you I'm glad oh. that... Oh, I get see. to see how you two bring the best out of each other and then like create these spaces where we can all go inside and bring the best out of ourselves too, because of the work you do. So I'm grateful. Grateful.
1: Thank it you. <laughs> see you. <laughs> Bye, Bye. y'all.
0: <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review us on Apple podcasts. It helps others discover the show. You can follow us on Instagram at Lineage Podcast and visit LineagePodcast.com for more information about this project and to watch my new meditative film, We Hold These Truths. It features reflections on ancestry from Season 2 Lineage guests and was produced with the Park Avenue Armory. The Lineage logo was designed by Tony Moore Images and the show's theme music is composed by Cody Gottbeats. For more from me, head on over to ShaniJamila.com and stay tuned right here. New episodes drop every other Tuesday.